RX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. Hi, welcome to the latest Studio 360 Podcast Extra. This one is a brand new installment of AHA Moments, our series featuring people's stories about encountering works of art and culture that change the course of their lives. Such as Shane McRae. In 1990, he was going to high school in Oregon, a suburb of Portland. He was a certain kind of typical 10th grade kid. Kind of angry, kind of unhappy, not excited by much except sad music and skateboarding. But something was about to change for Shane. Change everything. I was very depressed when I was a teenager, and I probably started to be depressed younger than I knew. Aloha High School was a white school, and Aloha was a very white town, and I was a black kid who was into alternative music, into goth things. And in 1990, that wasn't an accessible identity. The Cure had had a black drummer in like 87 or something for maybe a minute, and so I felt I was very by myself in this identity. I used to dress in all black because I thought that that's what goths did. And I wore this trench coat. It was a trench coat that was a little bit too small for me, but it was black and it had, the lining was kind of red plaid, but I didn't have black socks. I don't think I even really knew I could get any other color of socks. I really thought white was it. There was nothing wrong with our son, and that's final. No, it's not! One day, I was at school, and uh, someone, and, and it might have been a teacher, I'm not sure, decided to show us a movie about teen suicide. It was a made-for-TV movie from 1984, Silence of the Heart. We're all afraid to admit our feelings when we get depressed. Everybody looks like they're wearing clothes from 1984. Charlie Sheen's in it, looking young. I mean... Not like high school, but close enough. Hey, Lily, how's everybody doing today? We've all got the kind of feathery 80s hair. I'm not going to be here for the barbecue. Oh, skip. And in that movie, a boy ends up killing himself. And after he's killed himself, his sister, apparently in an effort to prevent other people from killing themselves, films some kind of it, almost like a PSA about suicide. Whenever you're ready, Cindy. And at the beginning of this, she reads lines from Sylvia Plath's Lady Lazarus. Dying is an art, like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. I do it so it feels like... I heard that poem, and it felt like... I mean, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but it did feel like a kind of an electric shock. I'd never heard anything like it. I'd never had a feeling like that. You could say I have a call. Suddenly, there was this thing that I was indescribably attracted to. I realized poetry could be like that, that poetry could be... could speak to how I felt, could be sad in the way that I felt sad. Sylvia Plath wrote that poem. People think of Sylvia Plath as a depressing writer. But for me, when I heard those lines by Sylvia Plath, it struck me as sad, but its sadness made me feel better. 
So I heard those lines. I just thought it was amazing, and it was an amazing feeling. And that day I wrote eight poems, the first of which was called Death is an Art. It ended with the phrase, and the artist is me, which I used to be (laughs) too embarrassed to say or even really remember, but that's how it was. Our story will continue in a moment. And I took the bus home, and I wrote some more. I might have written some on the bus. I definitely wrote some in my room, possibly, while Dinosaur Jr. or something else was playing. The best way I can describe it is energetic, pumped up. And there's a certain degree of feeling a little nervous that comes with that. I kept writing those few days and weeks and months after those initial eight poems. I wrote them in blue erasable ink because I really liked erasable pens. And eventually they would look terrible because the pages would have all this erased ink all over them. I fancied myself very special because I was writing these poems. And I took every uh, opportunity to show them to uh, teachers and kids. And they said, these are good. Eventually, I speed up, and I actually check books of poetry out from the library at my high school. I checked out just whatever I saw. I checked out Linda Paston's PMAM, and I checked out Celestine Frost's An Inhuman Rival. And eventually, I checked out Collected Poems of Sylvia Plath, and I just never returned it to the library. Enter the chilly no-man's land of precisely five o'clock in the morning. I made a point of putting the book on the front right corner of my desk so that anybody who saw my desk would see that I had this book, that this was, in a sense, this is who I am. This sort of hyper-identification I had with Sylvia Plath, in retrospect, doesn't make a lot of sense. She's a, a white woman who lived on the East Coast in the middle part of the 20th century. I was a black man, although I guess the time was more like a black boy, living on the West Coast in the late part of the 20th century. And yet, one of the things that kept me going when I was an unhappy teenager was all the energy that I put into reading about Sylvia Plath and learning more about Sylvia Plath. And so departs. But his chair and bureau are the hieroglyphs of some godly utterance. Some of the stuff that she was doing with sound and the way that she made sounds interact with each other, her sound play, I guess I would say, was the source of excitement for me. And just the excitement about language and that you could use language in the way that she did. The common ghosts crowed out, worms riddling its tongue, or walks for Hamlet. Sylvia Plath did have a very unhappy marriage She was not an especially successful writer in her lifetime. She did not get the attention that she felt like she deserved. Later she killed herself. But what I saw was her kind of absolute and deeply passionate devotion to writing. And I became very serious so that by the time I was 16 or so, I was fully committed. I wanted to be a poet and it was all I was going to do. And that commitment that I first saw in Plath, I felt, was going to eventually get me to my life. When I was 18, my girlfriend got pregnant. 
I was in high school and at the time, I just wasn't thinking about anything. I wasn't thinking about the future other than that I wanted to be a writer. I think that I named my daughter Sylvia after Sylvia Plath because Sylvia Plath was, I felt, responsible for my life. And having a child was in some ways a kind of ultimate expression of having a life. As far as I know, Sylvia does not read Sylvia Plath. She's her own adult now, and she lives in Portland being a makeup artist. My great-grandmother, or her family was, was some of them. Austrians. Now I'm a poet. I live in New York City. I teach at Columbia University. I'm married. I have two other children. And I'm interested in life and not death now. Escaping to America. They're wearing heavy woolen coats. I suppose I would say my life is the kind of life that I wish Sylvia Plath could have had. But she didn't have the chance to. To them, the cold spray, the white fog clings to them, their coats, it seeps into their coats. My poetry is very different from Plath's, although I still think if you really wanted to, you could see her influence. Soon, already, there is no difference between the weight of their bodies and the weight of the world. Looking back over my life, I think that at different stages, Sylvia Plath has meant different things. In the beginning, she was a window into this world that I had never seen before. Dying is an art, like everything else. Very soon after that, she became something like a guide to that world, a way to make my way into poetry. I do it so it feels real. I guess you could say I have a cold. Soon after that, she became a model for how to be as a person in the sense that she was passionately devoted. And now I'm still very interested in Plath, but she's not, she's not the poet that most excites me. She's just the poet upon whom my life is founded, which is not a small thing. The theatrical comeback in broad day to the same, the same place, place, the same face, the same, the same brute, the same amused shout, amused a shout, a miracle that knocks me out. There is a charge for the eyeing of my scars. There is a charge for the hearing of my heart. It really goes. And there is a charge, a very large charge, for a word. Shane McRae's previous poetry collection won an Anisfeld Wolf Book Award earlier this year. And his new book of poems, The Gilded Auction Block, has just been published. Justin Glanville produced our story. And one last thing before I go, if you like listening to this podcast as much as we like making it, let the world know by rating us on iTunes, which helps other listeners discover Studio 360. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 